Luke 10. Last week, big transition, big pivot point in Jesus' ministry in Luke, Luke 9.51. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. Your Bible may say, and we said that's a, that's a pivot point, a transition from 9.51 through chapter 19, about verse 27 or 28. That whole 10-chapter chunk is really Jesus on the road. This is his last journey into Jerusalem. He knows he's going to his death. Don't know how much time is entailed in those uh, ten chapters. I think it's probably just a few months, six at the most, probably even a little bit less than that. I don't know exactly. But there's a sense of urgency, and we'll see that today, some of the things that Jesus is saying. He knows this is his. he's on the home stretch with, with his disciples. And we said last week uh, he's focusing during those ten chapters on what it looks like to follow him. He's trying to correct some misconceptions. He's trying to give some information, paint a picture. Here's what it looks like to follow me. There have been lots of rabbis, and there's, there's an idea of what it means to follow a rabbi. I'm not that. I'm the Messiah. We, we said that last week. That was one of the things he came to show who he is. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. What did he come to do to release captives, seek and save the lost? And now he's saying, what does it look like? To follow me. Those other things are weaved in in these ten chapters, but the heavy theme or the, the constant emphasis, what does it look like to follow him? We closed last week these three very harsh statements. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We said that's not about being homeless, it's about being rejected. So Jesus is a traveling minister. He goes from town to town to town. And if somebody doesn't bring him in, if he's not accepted by anybody, if he's rejected by the town, then he's homeless that night. He's got no place to go. So he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to be rejected. If that's going to be an issue, then you're not, you're not worthy of this. I'm going, you're going to be rejected because I've been rejected. Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Harsh. Jesus trumps our obligations. We said the highest obligation for a Jewish son was to bury his father. And Jesus says, I'm more important than that. So whatever you feel like, this is my number one priority. This is the main responsibility and obligation of my life. Whatever that is, Jesus is above it. That's what he's saying in that statement to this man. Whatever, if it's taking care of your family or your wife or your kids or making money or getting a career or keep maintaining your own safety, whatever your number one obligation is, Jesus says, I win over that. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Another harsh statement. A guy just wants to go say bye to his family and Jesus says, I'm moving. Remember, there's a sense of urgency. I'm going. By the time you get back, go back and say goodbye and then get back here, I'll be days down the road. I'm more important even than those relationships that you have. Those are harsh statements. But we said they're not intended to intimidate us. They're, it's, it's what Jesus comes to give us abundant life. This is a doorway into abundant life. What he's saying there is you've got to be okay being rejected. You don't need to worry about trying to please people. That's not abundant life. That's a lot of work. Some of you live that way. Constantly trying to make other people happy. Wondering, are we okay? Are we okay? Did I offend anybody? It's a difficult way to live. Jesus says, just know you're going to be rejected. He says, I'm first. Not because he's got a big ego, but because he knows I'm the only thing worth basing your life around. I'm it. Anything else becomes an idol, and ultimately idols will let you down. None of them can carry the weight of your life. I'm the only one that can do that. You're made for me. I'm made to be number one. I'm the only one who can carry the weight of your life 
moving forward. And so that's why he says, abundant life, putting your weight on me, not on these other things. Those other things, once you put them in priority order, they'll be taken care of. Seek first the kingdom. These things will be added to you. And even relationships, he says, put me first. And then all your other relationships will come into line, will come into order. Otherwise, putting one of those relationships first, again, makes an idol out of that relationship or out of that person. And you'll suffocate them. And ultimately, they will disappoint you. So that's what Jesus is saying. That's following me. And then he immediately goes into chapter 10 where he sends out a group of people. And that's what we're going to look at today. So here's this picture of following. And then it's right on the heels of that. There's ascending. After this, so after saying those things, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So these are 72 people who are following Jesus who aren't the 12. It's not Peter, James, John, Matthew. It's none of those guys. We don't know any of their names. These are faceless, anonymous followers. For some of us, we let ourselves off the hook. We've said before, God wants us to live like missionaries, and we say, well, I'm not in the club. Like, whatever the inner, if, if, if Jesus was picking today 12, he's not picking me. I'm not, that's not me. I don't know enough, I don't have enough time, whatever. We disqualify ourselves from living our life as one sent by God because we say, that's, that's just not where I am. This, he appointed 72 others, says, yeah, you're one of them. We're all, we're, we're all in that group. He pulls 72 anonymous followers out of his group, and then he sends them out with the same commission, the same power, the same authority he sent the 12 out with. He sends them ahead of him, every town and place that he's about to go. So Jesus told them, here are the instructions. I want you to listen to all of the commands, those uh, imperative verbs. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So that's the situation. Lots of things need to get, there's lots of fruit on the vine, Not enough people to go and pick it. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of this town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I'm going to pause here because there's a shift in verse 12. So all those commands, you heard them, all those imperative verbs. Here's the situation. Lots of fruit, not enough people to pick it. So what do you do? Two things. You ask. You pray. We say that it's normal. I'm not a farmer, wasn't raised on a farm, would understand it's normal during harvest time to hire extra workers. We've got to get all of this in. Time is of the essence, so nothing rots or spoils on the vine. So we need more people to go out and do the work. That's what Jesus is saying. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Ask God to send out more workers. So that's step one. Pray. And then step two is go. Pray and go. Be an answer to your own prayer. We need more workers, and guess what? You're one of them. You're one of those workers. So here's the situation. Harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. What do we do? We pray, and then we go. And Jesus says, and here's how you're going to go. You've got to travel light. I'm going to send you out as lambs among wolves. What does that mean? What is that, how, how, what's the relationship between a lamb 
and a wolf. A lamb is food for a wolf. That's their relationship. Lambs have had, sheep have no defense mechanisms at all. They're just fluffy. They can't, have you ever seen one run? Awkward, not fast, not good. What he's saying is I'm sending you out and you've got to rely completely on me. Just like a sheep has to rely completely on a shepherd to protect it, you're going to have to rely completely on me. You're going out defenseless, totally dependent on me. That reminds us of when he sent out the 12, right? And I want you to travel light because you've got to go fast. You don't need to pack anything. We've looked at that in chapter 9 as well. You're going to be taken care of in every town that you go to. I don't even want you to stop and say hey to anybody because for them a greeting wasn't just hey. It took hours to greet someone properly. He said, we don't have time for that. Time is of the essence. There's a sense of urgency. I'm on the move, and you've got to get there and prepare the towns before I, get, before I arrive. Harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. Ask, and then go, and I want you to go quick, and I want you to go relying on me. And then when you get someplace, here's what I want you to do. You go to the gate or the square, whatever the center of the town is, People will come to you, they'll recognize you as, as a stranger, and hospitality says they'll invite you into their home. And when someone invites you into their home, you say, peace be upon you. That's not a, a, a formal, that's not a greeting, it's not trite, it's not a cliche. There's, that word peace is really dense in the Bible. It's, it's everything that God wants to do in someone's life. It's salvation. Here's forgiveness God wants to offer you. Here's reconciliation. Here's restoration. That word peace is shorthand for everything that God wants to do. So he's saying, you share all of that with them. You share the good news of the kingdom. You tell them what it is. You tell them who I am, and you tell them what I'm doing. And if they're open to that and receptive, that is, if they're a person of peace or if they promote peace, then you stay. And you've given to them spiritually, and so it's okay to receive back from them in a material or a tangible way. You're doing this spiritual work, and it's okay for you to, for you to be taken care of, be paid in a sense for that. Let them feed you, let them shelter you, let them provide a base of operations for you. That's, that's giving and receiving. You're receiving their hospitality, and you're giving to them this good news that you have received from Jesus. If they're, if they're not open to that, if it's a red light, then don't, you can move on from them. And he says the same things in the towns. You're going to go to a town. If a town welcomes you, then great. You can stay and you can do ministry there. You can eat there. You can heal the sick and you proclaim the kingdom. If the town rejects you, we said last week, we don't call fire down on people. You shake the dust off your feet and you proclaim the kingdom there as well. It's the same message in each place. The only difference is there. Response, verse 12, our responses have consequences. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town that rejects you, whichever town that is. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the, in the judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Excuse me. All the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. 
However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name was written in heaven. So there are consequences. And Jesus starts by saying to all these towns and he picks some really wicked towns, Sodom, worst town in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile towns that are seen as wicked. And he said it's going to be better for this group of towns than for this group of Israelite towns, Capernaum. Bethsaida, this town called Chorazin, we don't know anything about it. It's never mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus said it's going to be better for these wicked towns than for these Israelite towns because these Israelite towns have rejected me. When they reject you, they're rejecting me. When they reject me, they're rejecting the God who sent me. This was from Luke 12. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. We'll get here in a few weeks and we'll talk about what what does that look like. Are there levels of hell? Are there different types of punishment? I don't know. There absolutely seems to be a bit of an implication there that says the more you know, the more you're responsible for. The more you experience, the higher your level of accountability He says more bearable in our passage in chapter 10. It will be more bearable. He doesn't say Sodom is great and they're going to be okay or Tyre and Sidon are fine and they're not going to be judged. He says it's going to be more bearable for them. Maybe there's going to be fewer blows, whatever that means, and we'll try to figure that out in a couple of weeks. There'll be fewer blows for them because they haven't experienced as much. Jesus never came to them. They never had God in the flesh. They never heard the good news of the kingdom. They never experienced these miracles that these other Israelite towns have experienced. So for us, the takeaway where we live is we're responsible for a lot. We know a lot. I wish I could remember which book, maybe Philippians. Paul says, live up to what you've already received. That's a high, there's a high bar for us because we've received a lot. Many of us have been in church for decades. We've heard it all. And at some point, God's going to say, what if, okay, what about that? That's not a guilt deal at all. That's just this recognition. We've said before, Jesus doesn't give suggestions. He gives commands. So what he's looking for from us, are you incorporating truth into your life? He's looking for ears to hear him. And so what he's saying to people like us, we're much more like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. We're people who've, we've gotten a lot of revelation and we've experienced a lot from the Lord. And so what he's going to say is, what have you done with what I've given you? Again, I don't want you to hear that as guilt, but as opportunity and invitation. And then he says, so that there's consequences of rejection, but there's also blessings for acceptance. The 72 come back and they're thrilled. They were able to cast demons out from people. Jesus didn't say that explicitly, but the instructions from chapter 9 to the 12 tie in. to the, They're implied in these instructions to the 72. And so they come back and they're telling all these stories. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's a very cryptic statement. What exactly is he talking about? I don't know. There's several possibilities. And I say yes to all of them. Is he referring to Satan's original fall out of heaven? You can read about that in Isaiah 14, 12. Is he saying as the disciples are casting demons out of people that Satan is being uh, Thrown out of heaven, probably so. Is he looking forward prophetically? Revelation 12, Satan finally being cast out of heaven. Maybe I'll say yes to all of those things. I think that what he's trying to convey is Satan can't hurt you. 
snakes, scorpions, those things, they can't, those are metaphors for evil powers. Those, nothing can, those stuff can't harm you. Spiritually, you're safe. I've seen Satan fall. I'm seeing him fall, and I know he's going to fall fully and finally. He can't touch you. So you be glad that your name is written in the book of life. If you read Revelation 20, there are these sets of books. Everybody comes before the throne. And there's a book, and it's got Ruth Allen's name on it. And there's a book, and it's got Brandon's name on it. And a book with John's name on it. And if you read Revelation 20, it says that God's got a book for you. And he opens it up. And he judges you based on what's written in that book. That makes me nervous. And I'm a good boy. And it still makes me nervous. Especially if he's going to start getting into thoughts. That type. I don't, I don't, I don't want to read it. Much less have anybody else see it. But he also said there's another book. This book of life. And John's name's in it. And so is Ruth Allen's. And so is Brandon's. And so because their name is in that book, this other book never gets opened. That's great news. That's great news. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to write your name in this other book. The book of life. So this book about your life never has to be cracked open. And you're not going to be judged based on your track record. And Jesus says, you be happy about that. This stuff that you did is awesome. You be happy that you're not going to be judged based on your track record. As good as your last few weeks have been, you be happy you're not going to be judged based on that. But based on whether or not your name is written in the book of life. At that time, this is very interesting. It's almost this kind of spontaneous bubbling up of praise or something in Jesus' heart. It's very interesting. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then Jesus turned to his disciples. So this is specifically to the twelve. And he says privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So then coming out of all of this, Jesus almost has this little, again, I don't know what it is, says full of joy and the Holy Spirit. And he's just thrilled at the way God works. That's really what this is. He's thanking God because of the way God works. God, it blows me away. That you're picking this group of nobodies to reveal this truth to. Things kings and prophets have wanted to know. You're revealing truth to this group of 72 and even to this smaller group of 12. Things that you you didn't pick the rich. You didn't pick the powerful. You didn't pick the smart. You didn't pick the religious elite. You picked this group of folks to reveal yourself to. And I think Jesus is thrilled by that. Probably the only thing in that little section that can be a catch is... The, the father, the son reveals the father to those whom he chooses. And for some of us, we can see that as restrictive. Oh, who is Jesus going to choose to reveal the father to? And is that this small little group? I see it as a huge group. I think Jesus reveals the father to anybody who's interested. He's looking for people who have hearts that are open to respond. He's looking for people who have ears to hear. We looked at that back in chapter 8 with the parable of the soils. That's what he's looking for. And anyone who says, I want more, he gives more. That idea of revelation, many blows and few, few blows, and how does he pick anybody who's saying, I want more? He says, absolutely. His desire is for us to know him. He does not withhold himself from us. 
arbitrarily. He's not playing a game. He's not, it's not hide and seek where we're trying to find him. What he said, I'm here and I'm willing to reveal myself to you if you want me to do so. So what does this look like for us? I think the big thing I want you to hear is to live your life like a missionary. I want you to recognize the, this, the two sides of this coin, following and then being sent, being called to Jesus and then being sent out by Jesus into the world. And both of those things are necessary. You don't get to pick. It's not either or. It's both. We're both called and we're sent by him. We follow him. We become more like him. Take on the family likeness, if you like. And then we're sent. We engage in the family business. And both of those things are important for us. We don't get one or the other. We're adopted into the family of God. And then as I begin to follow Jesus or imitate him, I take on his likeness. And then the father says, all right, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to engage. I want you to help me in the family business, which is renewing all things. And so if you're a Christian, that's dual emphasis, dual impulse should be a part of your life. And if it's not, I want you to feel tension. I don't want you to feel guilt, but I want you to feel a little tension this morning because that's the expectation of Jesus for us, that all of us will be once be followers and sent ones. We'll all be called to him and sent by him, that all of us will live our lives as missionaries. If for you, the thought of that is nowhere on your radar screen. You're not qualified. You don't have time. Honestly, you don't care. If those are the things going through your mind, I want you to grab on to, why don't I live my life like a sent one? I, very, 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 very few of you, less than five, will probably be called overseas. The overwhelming majority of you will, when I'm saying sent, I don't want you here travel. I want you to hear intention. I need to begin to recognize that God has sent me to a particular place or a particular people to do particular things. And those are the places where you already are, most likely. It may require some change for some of you, but for most of you, that, that's not it. He's already got you there. It's just a matter of us having eyes to see what he's saying to us. So let me give you a couple of things to think about. One, this is, I would say this is, this is passive living like a missionary. This is a passive way of doing it, but it's a great way to get into it. This is 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus. We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing to the one where the smell of death to the other the fragrance of life and who is equal to such a task. The answer is you're equal to that task. That's you. You're equal to that. That's what God is setting you apart for. The context God just won a big military victory. He's parading back into his city. He's got his guys with him, and he's got the captured soldiers with him. They're entering into the city. There's a big celebration. There's a bunch of incense being burned. And as the soldiers enter the city, they smell the incense, and the guys who are on the winning side are going, yes, they're going to have a huge banquet in my honor. I'm about to be celebrated. And the guys who are on the losing side are going, not good. They're either going to kill me, or they're going to sell me into slavery. It's the same smell. It's incense. But depending on what side of the battle they were on, victor or loser, it conveys two very different things. Some of you will go to La Perea in a little bit. And the person next to you is going to order fajitas. And they're not going to ask for them with no smoke. Because they're rude. And you are going to smell 
for the rest of the day. You will. And for some people, Jane loves La Perea. When she smells you, it's going to make her say, I'm going there for dinner. For her, it's the smell of life. Others of you don't love La Perea. And for them, it's going to be the smell of death. You're going to say, please take a shower. Change your shirt. It's the same smell. But depending on how you feel about La Perea, it evokes two very different things in you. We all smell. And we smell. It's no effort. It doesn't require any work for us. It's so hot in here, none of us smell good right now. It's happening. The people next to you smell you. And you're not having to do anything other than sit. There's a fragrance that we all emit. What Paul, and he's trying to draw that picture for us. It's easy to be smelly. It doesn't require anything. And we're all the fragrance of Christ, he says. Who's worthy of this task? You are. If you're a Christian, then you are the fragrance of Christ. You're the aroma of Christ. And so then the question becomes, are you living that way? Are you allowing the fragrance of Christ to emanate from you? When people are around you, what do they smell? There's three choices. They can smell smoke. Daniel 3 talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown in a furnace. It's really hot. And they're thrown in the furnace in order to kill them. And they're thrown in there, and then this miracle happens. Jesus is in the furnace with them, and their their ropes fall off, and they're walking around. And the guys who are watching are bewildered. They're like, what's happening? This furnace was so hot, some of our guards were killed by it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out. And that's what it says right there, chapter 3, verse 27. They don't even smell like smoke. If you smell like smoke, you smell like your circumstances. That's the default mode for most of us. If you go to La Perea, then when you leave, you're going to smell like La Perea. Unless you do something to counter that, that's how you're going to smell when you leave. Because that was the atmosphere that you were a part of. And so, for most of us, the default is we smell like smoke. We're not distinctive. When, when people are around us, they don't necessarily smell Jesus sometimes. They just, because we change a little bit. We kind of take on the flavor or the character of the group or the circumstances that we're in. Maybe you tone things back a little bit in terms of um, the way you talk about the Lord, or the way you talk about your own faith. Or maybe you go along with things you wouldn't normally do. Or maybe you just keep your mouth shut. That means you're smelling like smoke. Some of us smell like sweat. Galatians 3 says we began in the spirit or we're finishing in our flesh. We all know that salvation is a gift from God and we receive that. But then at times we can begin to try to finish the race in our own strength, in our own striving. When people are around us, that's what they smell. They smell our own effort. They smell our flesh. We have great, uh, admirable goals accomplished in the wrong way. If your life is, if you would, if, in general, if you like joy in your life, then people aren't smelling Jesus. They're smelling your sweat. If you're frustrated all the time, they're not smelling Jesus. They're smelling your sweat. If that's what comes out of you. If you're constantly changing uh, the way you interact with other people, they're not smelling Jesus. They're smelling smoke. You're just reflecting the atmosphere that you're in. But ultimately, as a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And you can, and I would say should, we should, smell like Jesus. It just requires proximity. The closer we are to him, the more time we spend with him, he'll change the way we think, and he'll change the way we feel, and he'll change the way we act. And we'll start to smell differently. 
you'll begin to interact in situations in a way that's it's not ju- you're not just kind of licking your finger and trying to figure out which way the wind blows. That's being a, a thermometer. You'll become a thermostat, someone who sets atmosphere. Not because you're a jerk, not because of the strength of your personality, but because Jesus has changed you. And you'll begin to talk differently. Not King James Version, but the things that come out of your mouth will be softer and they'll be deeper and richer. You won't just be repeating what you read or what you heard on the news. You won't be a shill for anybody. You'll have a unique perspective based on what you're hearing from the Lord. The way you interact with people, the judgments that you make will be completely different. All of that stuff begins to change and people will notice. That's why the smelling thing, is, it's an easy way to be a missionary. I said it was passive because you don't necessarily have to do anything. People will notice. They'll say, why are you so joyful? I don't understand how you're so calm all the time. I read what she said about you on Facebook and I don't get how you've been able to forgive them. Why didn't you shoot back at her? Why didn't you cut her off? All of the people will notice because you'll smell like Jesus and they'll ask. That's a person of peace. That's someone saying, I want to know. I want to know. And then you can tell them what the difference is, why you are acting the way you're acting. That's easy. That's people coming to you and you just answering their question. There's a next step, which is a little trickier for us. It requires a little more uh, initiative and risk-taking, but we want to get there. Matthew 10, 8, when Jesus sends out the 12, in Matthew's gospel, I love this little phrase. He says, freely you have received, so freely give. That's what it means to live your life as a missionary. It means to give away the things that you've received from the Lord. Last week we talked about recognizing that the assets we've been given we, we need to give back to him. We talked about our homes and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about tangible or material assets here. I'm talking spiritual reality, spiritual truth, spiritual experiences. What are the things that God has put in your heart? What are the things he's given to you? And what does it look like for you to begin to give those things away to others? Step one, do you recognize what God's actually given to you? Do you recognize that? I had breakfast with a couple, a couple uh, two or three months ago, and they said, we feel like we're really good working with people who need to learn how to fight. We fought like cats and dogs our first two years. And God did a work in us, and we, that's our thing. That, I don't know if that sounds silly to you or not, but they get it. Like They recognize, here's one thing God has given to us. It's very practical, but it's so important. I talk with people all the time who don't know how to disagree with their spouse. And it creates all kinds of problems. And these guys are saying, God has shown us some things, and we would love to give away what he's given to us. Some of you are great with your finances, and you think that's easy. It's not. That's something God has given to you. And you can say, God's shown me how to manage money. He's shown me how to be generous, not to hoard. He's shown me how to not give in to every desire that I have, whatever those things. And I'm, I'm great giving those things away. Some of you are really good at work. God has given you some insight in how to work, how to work unto the Lord, how to not get swamped, how to not get swallowed up, how to not have your identity defined by what you do. Some of you are great husbands or wives or great parents or friends. or Some of you know how to or, or understand something about healing or hearing God's voice or reading the Bible. Some of you have been frustrated tremendously, and you can say, anybody walking through, I'm I'm there. Some of you have experienced tremendous loss, and so you can help people. There's things that God has given to you. Do you know what they are? Two or three or ten. 
things that he's given to you. That's one. The second thing is to recognize there's tons. The harvest is plentiful. There are tons of people who are hungry and thirsty. I read this book last week, Overwhelmed, How to Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. After I got about halfway through it, actually about a third of the way through it, I realized it was written to working moms, which I'm not a working mom. But it was still pretty good. It's not a Christian book, but it's this lady. What it showed me was there's this, there's this hunger. There's this, she's saying, we talk all the time about rest, work, and relationship. God wants us to live in that rhythm. That's what she's looking for. Work, love, relationship, play, rest. That's what she's looking for. And she went all over the world interviewing all kinds of people trying to figure out, how do I do this? There are people who have their doctorates in leisure. It's a good job. If you can figure that one out. People who spend all of their time, PhDs, in studying how we spend our time. There was a lady, and what she does, she collects Christmas cards. That's, she's a PhD. She collects Christmas cards. And she looks at the words and says, what are the words that people are saying about their life reflect about their hearts? And what she's noticed since the 1960s is the number of people saying things like crazy, hectic, making a list of accomplishments, it's going through the roof. Busyness is a badge of honor. It's a status symbol now. She says she uses the word cultural imperative. If you're not busy, you're not anybody. And so this lady's going all around the world saying, how do I have it all? How can I have a career and a family? How can I do both of those things and have time to play for myself to relax and renew and restore? And so it's 200 and something pages of her trying to figure it out. And at the end... Flip to the back. Show me the punchline. She doesn't have one. It's work hard. That's what she comes up with. You've got to work hard to do this. And there's truth there because you're swimming upstream. But when I'm reading that, what I'm saying is here's a lady, and she represents millions of people, millions and millions of people who are drowning. And she's saying, can somebody help? And she goes to every Ph.D. that she knows, and she goes to every conference that she can find, and she meets with every support group that somebody makes her aware of. And it's not there. And I can say, and you can say, I got the answer. God's given that to me. God's given that to me. You're not be- we're not better than anybody. But we have resources that are available to us in Jesus that people separated from him just don't have. And you can say, hey, I've learned how to not allow my identity to be wrapped up in my work. I've learned that rest is actually trusting. It's saying I'm going to be I'm not going to be productive. And that's hard. And I can God's shown me how to do that. And I can maybe point you in the right direction. God has shown me how to do relationships well, where I don't become enmeshed with somebody else. But I'm able to serve and bless and honor others. I just use that as an example. There are people who are hungry and thirsty, and they're all around. And my confession is I don't see them. When he says the harvest is plentiful, I say, where? Not in Marietta. Where is the harvest plentiful? Where are the people who are hungry and thirsty? But if I'm going to believe what he says instead of what I see, then ultimately he wins, then I've got to say it's true. There are people who are writing books saying, somebody, that book is a plea. Somebody help me. Show me how to live in rhythm. She recognizes this created rhythm 
rest, work, and relationships, although she doesn't, seem to, she doesn't acknowledge the Creator who made it. We can help with that. You can help with that. There are people in your circle who you are sent to who are hungry and thirsty. may not appear it on the outside, but if we'll begin to say, God, show me. Give me eyes to see. Help me recognize the need in others. I'm not better than anybody. I'm a beggar who wants to show another beggar where I found bread. Give me eyes to see. And then the last thing is you've got to make time to give away what you've received. It's the hardest thing for most of us. We don't have have time. No capacity, no space. If you want to meet with me, it's going to be a month. That's how most of you are. So far out before we can connect. We walk past each other so quickly. What does it look like to say, I'm going to create space in my life. I'm going to create time to actually invest in somebody else, to give what I've been given. That means you've got to be their best friend for life. But what does it look like for some stretch of time, whether it's an hour or a month or six months, to say, I'm going to give you what I've got in order to see you grow. Let's pray. I want you to follow me in your heart, if you will. Two big things. You got kind of, kind of this more passive. I don't, I don't, that's not to disparage or demean. It's just true. It's easier to smell than it is to share. So that's first, God, I pray for us. We are the aroma of Jesus. We're the, we're his, we're the fragrance of Christ. And my prayer for every one of us is that would be strong. That our time with you would not be ritualistic or rote, would not be checking off a box, but it would be transformative. That we would meet with you in the word, we'd meet with you in prayer, we'd meet with you in worship, we'd meet with you in silence, we'd meet with you in creation. All of the different avenues that you've opened up and said, here's a channel, here's a pathway where you can connect with me. I pray that we would meet with you. I pray for people who are going, I, I, I don't know how. I don't connect with them. God, would you speak to them? Show them the ways that you've wired them, the ways that you want to speak to them and gain access to their hearts. And as we spend more and more time with you, God, again, I pray that your fragrance in us would become stronger and stronger. And when we're asked, and we will be, because we'll smell like you, Jesus, and not like smoke and not like sweat, I pray we'd have a response, that we wouldn't shy away from the opportunity. And then moving into this more, it's, to me it's riskier, especially as an introvert, that's risky to me. This idea of freely giving away what you've given to me. First, God, I pray that you would show us. What have you given us? What's the spiritual reality, the truth, the experiences that we have? God, would you highlight those things in our minds? And God, would you give us eyes to see the places and the people where you're sending us, where the harvest is plentiful. I look at Marietta and I see cultural Christianity. I see apathy. I see busyness. It's hard for me to see people who are saying, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty for something different. But you say the harvest is plentiful. And so I want to, we want to believe you. Give us eyes to see in our offices and neighborhoods, our families and 
specific organizations show us where these people of peace and then God would you give us no God would we make time you've already given us 24 hours a day that's what we get God would we make time for the people who you're highlighting in our life not adding another thing it's not what this is about well now I'm a missionary in addition to everything else I already am it's another hat to wear that's not it it's not a hat it's already it's who you are you're a son or a daughter and this flows naturally out of that it's not another thing for you to do it's a different set of glasses for you to wear that's it it's noticing listening to what people say with their hearts not just with their words walking a little bit slower lingering a little bit longer in conversation following those promptings call them why don't you send them a text and see how they're doing following those things a little more quickly that's it it's nothing added on you're already following him and recognize his desire is to send you as well So, God, I pray that we would live that way as sent followers. In Jesus' name.